This is Research Conversations Podcast, produced by Marion Wallace and brought to you by Research Publications and Books. Welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale. We've traveled all the way to New Paltz, upstate New York, to interview one of the absolute pioneers of art of the 20th and 21st century, Carolee Schneeman. And uh, welcome to the Counterculture Hour, Carolee Schneeman. Thanks, Vale. And um, I just want to say I'm thrilled that you're here. We're actually in Springtown. It's uh, it, it was once its own post office address. Uh, we're in the house where I've worked for most of my life. That was built in 1750, and I'm thrilled that you're here because the work we did before, when you published uh, my interview and in research, led to uh, a whole context, a configuration, a community, and a prolonged discussion of issues that uh, I still care about. It's one thing to start out and say, oh, I'm going to be an artist. It's a way different bill of goods to last the course and to be one all your life. I don't think that's easy. And so I think we need to get all the wisdom we can for future generations from Carol Lee as to just how you keep going and as well as how you start. Neither one is easy. Oh, I don't like to be a source of any kind of wisdom. I've always been... uh staggering around, trying to follow the image I need to see. I've never had what I considered a proper career. There's a moment in the 80s when feminist principles seemed to have um, settled in, when a lot of young artists came and asked me, what was my strategy? Uh, And questions like that, you know, appalling. I said, you know, I'm just uh, struggling along here. I haven't usually had much financial support. I still teach. Uh, I'm thrilled that aspects of the work are relevant and in the culture, but I'll never feel that um, that I had this kind of professional, glamorous career that seems to be the ambition and expectation of um, most younger artists and many of my students. You know, we, we, we come out of the, the rough and tumble and you put it together with string and glue, and you do it because you have to see what's going to happen. And I still don't work because I think I'm going to show it or present it. You know, I love that approach, which I would call something like empiricism rather than platonic idealism. In other words, you're seeing what works, but you're not sure. I, I, at least that's the way I'm interpreting it. It's more experiential and experimental. Well, you really have to see the full context of the work, the complexity of technology, and that, that those complexities and large installations often are resolved in dream and research into very odd sources. So I'm uh, kind of like a cauldron, slowly bubbling and adding and subtracting. And it's a very interior process for me, and it's not something that I would 
be able to do if I was a student now, because in the other classes, the students tell me they have to define and explain what they're about to do before they've done it. Uh, that wouldn't work for me. I mean, I'd have to lie. I would prevaricate. Still, you've done the work. I mean, you've done tons of work. Maybe we should just deal with, start with the earliest work, describe it, and and maybe that'll give us glimmers of insight tangentially. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's that's a good way to go because I'm doing a lecture now called Mysteries of the Iconographies. And it starts with drawings I found in a basket that I did when I was four and five years old. And I began to see that they were thematically obsessed with elements that have persisted uh, throughout the exploration of my visual work. For instance, uh, a broken kind of staircase, an, an indented linear form that is completely cracked. And that became a series of dozens of drawings in which I'm trying to put feet in between the extended planes. And that still remains a bit of a gravitational mystery to me. When you put your one foot here, then you raise the other, then really where is your body? Uh, There's almost an ineffable, indescribable physical propulsion going on. So, so when I really examined those broken staircase drawings, I began to see that I had uh, inserted certain linear elements in my painting constructions that uh, replicated this unconsciously, and then I was able to take it to the infamous, up to including her limits... No, I'm sorry, the interior scroll, into the infamous interior scroll, seen from the side, where you have exactly that indentation demarcation. Uh, So it's a kind of a a staircase, a way of examining the indecipherable moment or momentum from what's below to what's above, which becomes coming out of invisible dynamics. So you're only able to see... Um, this kind of filmic resolution of space. But the question around that space is always beyond what I can show. So that's how I think. See, that's, that's already impossible, right? <laughs> so. Maybe you better be the one to describe what the interior scroll means. Oh, no, I wouldn't possibly do that. You can look it up. You know, that's one thing about Google. Go to Google. And there'll be all kinds of stories about it. I mean, you know, for me it was a dream image, and I never wanted to inhabit it. And there was a gathering of artists where I was invited to do something, and then what I call the monkey on your back said, what about that image? If you could physicalize it, it would have a life. If you just have it in that drawing in the cigar box, it's... um, Anyway, then I was folding origami with my partner at the time, Anthony McCall. And then I wanted to extract this linear, smooth, folded text. And somehow I had to fit it neatly in my vagina and be able to extract it in one smooth line. So then engineering became involved. Technology, yes. Yeah, it was a subtle <laughs> 
for technology. <laughs> well, I do think a number of people were shocked when you did that. Well, I've never understood any that anything about my work was shocking because I don't intend a work that it's going to be didactic or shocking. It's coming from another another uh, visualization. Oh no, I agree. I mean, yeah. in my publishing, I have never intended anything <laughs> to be shocking. If it was shocking, that was a byproduct, yeah. but definitely not the intent. Never. It's always, you're after actually something else. Let's start with more concrete history of, of let's say, some of your art achievements. I mean, I'm only really happy and excited about my most recent work, and that's what I think about, and I could describe um, a recent Tate Liverpool commission for that wonderful huge museum, and I was able to do a new work, Precarious. It's an installation of 350 degrees that's fractured by a mirror system. It's uh, three DVD projectors and two mirror systems that I designed so that as the images move around a a really large museum space, uh, they fracture and overlap, and they're luscious. They're almost cubistic. And the viewers walk within the motion of all these images. The images are concerned with dancing in captivity. Uh, And when I edit video, I have a very painterly sense of color, duration, phrasing, saturation. And I've been very fortunate to work with a great editor at Electronic Arts Intermix. Uh, You might know of him, Trevor Shimitsu. Uh, So whenever I say... I need something to dissolve and then flare. He doesn't have a problem with that. He said, he'll usually say, well, I'm not sure the program can do that, but wait a minute. Uh, so it's been fabulous. So the elements in Precarious um, are that famous dancing cockatoo uh, snowball, which is a play on my name, but it's a boy bird, and he dances to absolute accurate rhythmic changes. So he's allowed out of his cage. So I have uh, versions, just fragments of his dancing. And then the prisoners from the Philippines, uh, hundreds of them dance to choreographic um, material that's responding to popular music. It's very intense. And so I, I use them as a kind of oceanic wave. And then there's uh, a bear on a chain, a very old image dancing, and two fragments of myself dancing. So precarious is uh, the way most of my work is exquisite and disturbing. There's something very beautiful and very sinister going on there. Uh, You and I were speaking earlier about the vast and complex changes in... um, Media and what we've used. I mean, the two of us, we probably start in 16, and then there was regular 8, then there was high 8, then there was, I don't remember everything, and reel to reel, and the painful editing of the early video where you had to rewind a certain number of counts and try not to be lost and then get your cut. So um, I guess in the mid 90s, I was collaborating with the filmmaker Maria Beattie. And she said, it's too bad that the original video footage of uh, Interior Scroll, 
which is only performed twice ever. People think they saw it, but no, they saw a picture of it. That that footage was withheld, or we might even say stolen, by the feminist friend who was at that time collaborating with me in 1975. So I think it's 1995, Maria said, why don't we do it as a group performance? In, and I said, yeah, we can use the cave where I live. Up here in the country, there's a beautiful, strange cave, uh, muddy and wet and high, high ceilings, and a river runs through it. We could go there. We got all the best equipment because she was technically um, very provident and demanding. I don't remember what she rented, but it was the highest quality video you could get. And then a couple of friends came from New York with their old Super 8, and they sat around in the mud, and they shot also. Then Maria and I were trying to edit uh, the high-definition video, and I was afraid to tell her. I thought it looked obscene. Uh, the colors were overly harsh and falsifying that sense of dampness and mud and skin. And she was afraid to tell me that we had spent all this money renting this stuff. And we both finally admitted how much we hated it. And then we went back to the Super 8. So Interior Scroll, the cave, the group event, uh, which is full of darkness and mystery, is back to Super 8. Yeah. Like a cycle. Yeah. Well, we can't keep doing that, though, can we? But the new programs for editing video can be so painterly and flexible. You know, they're remarkable. So I'm I'm happy. That's where I feel I'm painting now. I'm amazed that you're able to keep up with all these advances in technology. Well, I mean, well, it certainly helps to have a collaborator, I've found in my past. How about you? Well, I don't ever think I'm keeping up with it. I just see, oh, I want to try that. And I don't know anything about it. Uh, so this is what I imagine might be possible. And then there's a kind of hunting and searching for a collaborator. Because that's, that's hard. Yeah. But what I'm doing now, right now, there's stuff around the studio here. Now I'm building new kinetic sculptures because... I had a vision of these forms moving in space that they're going to be uh, going this way and that way, and they'll be about three feet high, and I don't know what I'm doing. I have to see it. And now it's really complex because they have to be sculpted and then put in a mold and then extracted from the mold, and it's going to get expensive. And what material will resolve these forms? And all the motors, how are the motors situated within those elements? You know, I'm sorry to say we just missed a show oh. very close by because we came here just too late. But what, since you like, and I don't blame you to talk about your most recent projects, I hope this is still fresh enough in your mind you can tell us all about it. I was really happy. Do you ever talk to a happy artist? Rarely. Rarely. <laughs> this was a really happy, satisfied confirmed artist. The exhibit was, uh, well, it's a provincial university museum, and I never, ever wanted to do anything in the town where I've lived for 35 years. I just wanted to stay quiet, except for certain ecological battles. Uh, but a new curator came to the Dorsky Museum, and he had a great affinity for the work, 
uh, intensive consideration of it, and we planned this huge, because it's a big space, it's really extensive survey or retrospective. And for the first time ever with my work, everybody got it. They all got it. They said, oh, now we see you're really a painter. Oh, now we see what the film and video comes from. Um, so he and I designed this, the, the historic flow of it, and uh, it was dynamite. It was wonderful. It had a lot of video painting. You know, it starts with really early work, and it's in a corridor that leads you then into uh, 70s, 80s. And when you first enter the museum, there's that a really huge facade wall of the illuminated objects that come from work called Vesper's Pool. But this exhibit is going to travel to the Henry Museum in Seattle, so that's not so far. It's west, anyway, right? way west. Wow, um, that's great. It's going to travel. I mean, tell me, I mean, how did how, did, how does the show travel? Do you have what you call a a gallerist or agent or I don't know what the terms are. Well, no, the gallery doesn't. I'm with PPOW. They're terrific. They don't do much outreach. You know, artists always have demands or needs or hopes. This happened because of um, two collectors who have followed the work and loved the work, and they gave all the information to uh, various museums. And somehow it was right and ready, and they want to do it. So, you know, that, that's really difficult. I couldn't put that together. Yeah. It's like an undertow. You know, you get dragged back, 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 back. But, well, I'm so glad it meant something, and it noticed, was noticed as part of a cultural vocabulary. But I'm trying to swim forward. I'm paddling, endless striving. And then what do I do with all this? That's also the older artist question. It's such a huge archive of material. It's film, it's video, it's books, it's drawing, it's photographs, it's objects, it's kinetic sculpture and installation. And, you know, if you were sensible, you would just stop at some point and say, I don't have space anymore. Well, fortunately, it is a big two-story house, I'm happy to say. <laughs> I think you have space. I mean, it's. I thought that a, a significant amount of what I know about that you've done, and I'm sure I know less than 1% of what you've really done, involves having to be there. Like, it involves motion, the human yeah. body in motion. And, you know, how do you freeze that in in amber or aspic or whatever you call it? Well, that's a popular preoccupation, but most of my work is installation. Uh, and then you have to be the projection systems. I've been designing projection systems for 30 years, and it's very, very difficult to find the space for the work that I really care about because of this preoccupation with the nude body. You know, um, put your clothes on already. You've, I've got something else for you to think about. Uh, so what I, my mantra is, my use of my body displaced my body of work. Now that's, you know why? Be, because I mean, in a way, I 
I have to express my displeasure of journalists, and I'd never call myself that, because let's face it, they are addicted to, and they are only in search of the lurid and the sensational. And a lot of artists have learned to play with that, or decided that they have to play with that. So I think the history of my work is so rocky, because uh, I'm always hoping for the next moment, a future time, when I can really present what I think is most crucial about what I do. Okay, I have to ask you if you keep diaries and and things like that. Yeah, pretty much whatever you can imagine, I'm doing it. Yeah, I have, I'll show you the diary before we stop filming. They're funny, yeah, and they're uh, quite systematic. I also started a diary when I was about five or six, but what it initially consisted of, and you know I still do it, was a list of my cats. And for about eight years they were all named Tommy, no matter what happened or what gender they were. So I wrote in the back of an A.A. A. Milne book, Tommy 1, Tommy 2, Tommy 3, Tommy 4, ad nauseum. And then, you know, something dreadful happened to each Tommy. Uh, killed uh, mommy through the corpse away, uh, buried under the apple tree. So I can remember some of that. But it's a very odd diary. <laughs> it's really funny. Each one is remarked upon. And I still have the list. You know, I redo it every year so that I can keep in mind which cats were um, part of my work most actively and their dates because there's almost always something mysterious and mystical where one is born on the day when the earlier one died, or I found it on the day when I got caught in the riptide in the ocean. The cat I have now, Minos, who's from a closet in Ohio, when I went to teach a course, a short course, on paranormal events for painters and sculptors. Um, and one of the students from Brazil, very psychic and interesting, said, uh, some kittens were just born in a student house around the corner. Do you want to go see them? I said, yeah, sure. And they're all nice gray and white ones crawling around, and this ball of fairy fire came darting out, you know, this big with a silver rim around his face and long mahogany fur and so full of energy. And I said, oh, what about that cat? And they said, well, everybody wants that one. I said, but why is he so unlike all the others? And no one knew. Uh, but pretty soon he was crawling in my lap. Well, I was on crutches because it turned out the day that this cat Minos was born, which they knew because they took the pregnant mother cat in, was the day when I was finishing uh, a lecture series in Florida for Michael Rush and got caught in a riptide. I was doing my last swim before we went to lunch. They were waiting for me. And I got caught in a riptide, and it tore my leg, tore my knee apart, and I couldn't, I just crawled out. I was so lucky I got out of the ocean, and I crawled across the hot sand and grabbed my towel. I couldn't use my leg at all. So I went to Ohio like five weeks later on crutches, and that's the cat you'll see here now. Now he's eight. can't believe it. He's eight. Yeah. Well, people would say that cats are women artists' familiars. Well, they're also cats are often familiars for a great number of men and male artists, even though 
it's been in the closet and the cat, cat they're coming out of the dogs and admitting the cat affinity and there's wonderful history of the cat as muse and companion to male artists writers sculptors uh, because when they have a, an immense presence and personality it's it's quite irrefutable but not all of them you know i've had dull and bad cats you know anti-art cats and they had to be given away. Yeah. Well, I guess I've been lucky. I've only <laughs> had a couple cats in my life, and they were fantastic. Okay. And they hear things out that you don't hear. Oh, yeah. You know that they're an ex- they have keener senses sometimes. So they they just make you at least seemingly more aware. You know, of your environment. Mm-hmm. They live in the now. They're very zen. Most of my cats that I'm really close to anticipate. They know when I'm going to leave the house before I know. They know if I'm going to travel before I pack. Uh, they put themselves at the door when I'm going to dinner with my friend George, who lives up the road. He wants to go. He's invited. Uh, so that now is very complex with the cat. Um but that's a whole other subject, the paranormal um, configuration that builds on what you say, that they see more or differently or hear. And they also imagine. And then since I had a reincarnation among two of my cats, that's a, another realm to consider. So, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to discuss economics of being an artist, but I hope that that this is your family home and at least you had a stable base where you could create without certain problems that artists I know have in New York City where the rents are sky high. Well, it's been very fragile. I've nearly lost the house for back taxes several times. Fortunately, Ulster County moves slowly to take your house. Uh, it's been so important to be here, fuses were shot here, Viet Flakes was envisioned here, the hallucinations of the disasters of Vietnam and the current considerations and research on the degradation of our ecology and the slipping away of the the more innocent righteous principles that were uh, motives to a democratic sense of <clears throat> of how we could exist as something relatively idealized. You know, sitting here in a house that's this old and imagining the uh, the slippage and to the degree of uh, guilt and corruption and greed and the in, almost incomprehensible technology that supports it so that we're free to do certain kinds of research because the dominating technological, militaristic culture has no fear of us. We don't have a movement. We're not going to lift the Pentagon. We're not even going to kick it. And so for my generation, that's 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 uh, uh, dismal, and it puts too much weight on the next generations. You know, they can blame us, but that's not accurate. We've given them the clues and the keys to our audacity and our courage and it's been overcome and it's partly been overcome 
by being in a culture of systematic assassination. So, yeah, that still concerns me. And that's in the unconscious. So when people don't risk anything, it's not because they're blaming the predecessors of the 60s or the 70s, it's because they have built everything on this invisible nightmare of every leader being murdered. We need to encourage people to tap their inner resources, dreams, you know, their notebooks. I consider notebooks very important in the wee hours of the night or as soon as you wake up. I mean, I think there's just inner somehow... Instead of everything being being plugged into the internet net twenty four seven, we, I think I think we need to turn more towards harvesting the inner artistic and creative thoughts and philosophical thoughts and life thoughts. Yeah, I agree with you because that's where we have to get our um, strength of knowledge, strength of purpose, and so reading, of course, is primary to this for me. Uh, intensive research, which I'm doing all the time. Sometimes it'll be on uh, trees, sometimes on male violence, always on the situation in uh, Palestinian culture, Gaza, Lebanon, um, trying to track the, uh, the oil deposits geographically. That always enlightens some kind of sociopolitical geographical context. Um, I guess what's buried, I like to think about what seems to be buried, and that fuels what I'm seeing. Well, you know, our publishing started out with a number of actual intentions. One is the Hegelian ideal, I guess, of working for more consciousness and more freedom for more beings, not just people. And and fighting authoritarianism as much as possible, right. and black. But black humor is really important. Right. It, don't trust any situation where humor is not permitted. Absolutely, absolutely. The work takes on a life of its own, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was curious about the exhibit that I was so happy about. There's a terrific catalog, a beautiful catalog very clear, but then people would be saying things that were so bizarre and off the wall, having to do with something, some particular drift of their own that really displaced what I thought might be the territory they could enter. You know, they were way, way off somewhere. But that's what art does. I think art elicits... You know, Duchamp always said the spectator completes the work of art, meaning the the spectator brings yeah. some something of their own world, and that the real art happens in the mind rather than it's not really frozen in the canvas or the yeah. film or whatever. No, it's it's splendid. It's, it's an amazing, splendid thing, but it's often subject to such deformation. It might take a lot of time for that to clear, or maybe never. So I try to just um, just stay with what seems most insightful that I like, you know, when somebody gets it, right? Well, I mean, 
it's a special kind of training that you've de- or not training it's the way you've lived that develops metaphors in your own vocabulary and your own vocabulary of icons and ideas but I guess you ought to be saying this, not me. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're saying it. That's that's it. That's definitely... Uh, and so I'm immensely gratified by um, areas of research that are quite consistently underway. And those are uh, thrilling to me, that uh, different men and women are examining the work thoroughly, and going into its iconography and its roots and its affinities and the larger issues that it can enter. Well, we're here in this 1750 large two-story home that fortunately exists to give Carolee Schneeman her artistic crucible and her laboratory and her studio and her creative, I don't know, dream chamber and everything else that goes into how she comes up with verbal concepts, ideas, art, film, video, installations, the huge gamut of productivity that she has obviously walked the walk and besides talking the talk. And um, we're here, and there's so much here. I wish you could see it all. That's all I can say. Well, what's odd about it is that uh, I'm here with it on my own. And most of the rooms that we'll look at uh, were rooms where my previous partners had their studios and did their work, where there was a constant interchange of uh, discussion and materials and pleasure. So um, this is a very heavy time. Uh, You know, it's me and a cat. At least you have the cat. The Thank cat. Goodness, yes. If anything happens to the cat, uh, I'm paralyzed. <laughs> We're here in New Paltz, upstate New York, in a really. You're in Springtown. Oh, sorry, Springtown, <laughs> New York, a really beautiful wooded, forested, super green area. We've been chatting with Carolee Schneeman, and uh, I want to thank her for welcoming us into our very own home. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to have you both here, Marianne on camera, and Bill on uh, thinking and remembering and looking ahead. So thank you both, because it's my pleasure. This has been another episode of Research Conversations Podcast, brought to you by Research Publications and Books. Thanks for listening.